Thank you, Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. Welcome back to Hanging with History. This is season one, that miracle that happened, that one time. And this is episode 50, where we complete muggles, ranters, and diggers from last week. Raul Sunset is still with us. What about Grindletonians? They didn't have the kind of legs Mongoltonians seem to have, and they seemed to cease being a thing by the end of the 17th century. A lot of them became seekers. Oh my God, I haven't even mentioned the seekers yet. Too many sects to keep track of. And Bartholomew Legate, the guy I mentioned being the last person burned for heresy in 1612, uh, was a seeker. And seekers became Quakers. Grindletonians were the followers of the Messiah William Hackett. Grindleton is located in Lancaster, near Pendle Hill, which is where George Fox, the founder of the Quakers, had his mystic visions also. That reminds me of Neil Gaiman's novel, American Gods, where a character talks about geographical places that have more spiritual energy than most. Pendle Hill would be a candidate. They came out of the weaving industry in Lancashire, where traditionally there were lots of Lollards. It's pretty easy to imagine Lollards alighting into all these sects. Not ever being formally organized, when we can finally see them, it makes sense they look like a lot of different groups. But that's all inference and attempts to find real links in the documentation of the time have not been very successful. Grindletonians were believers in the inner light, like all Puritans, but took it a bit further. They believed it was possible to live without sin, that anyone with the light could preach, and the spirit was more important than the text of the Bible. Some seem to think that they were part of the family of love, others just note similarities and beliefs, and actually primary source information on their beliefs is skimpy. Next, ranters and diggers. Ranters were kind of the hippies of the revolutionary decades. You can actually hear ranters on the street of San Francisco every day. They left one book about their beliefs, so with that caveat, they believed in mortalism, the soul dies with the body, materialism, God is everywhere, civil marriage. They were also on the side that the spirit is more important than the letter of the Bible. Good deeds as well as sins come from God. There is absolutely zero, zero need for outward worship. And that's reasonable if you want to keep your Sundays free and, and God is all around you all the time anyway. You are always, in effect, worshiping. At the time, they were accused of nudism and promiscuity laziness, and indulging the flesh. Free love keeps popping up as a religious idea, but pre-birth control, it was a self-defeating idea. Never lasted. Some of them went to digger communes. Diggers were basically primitive communists going for common ownership of property and creating paradise on earth. The diggers felt the ranters were less than useless, just wanted to eat, drink, and screw all day instead of doing the hard work of farming marginal land. The diggers were trying to make the commune real, but there's so much hard work required in an agricultural commune, and when you start out by throwing out the rule book on social relations, well, it just never worked, did it? The whole human history of attempts to found communes has to deal with this problem. And also, once hippie-type outsiders hear about it, they want to get in on it, but are more excited about the spirituality and liberation than the back-breaking labor. The diggers threw out most of the ranters. Here's an interesting digression on the diggers. There was a group that called themselves the diggers in San Francisco back in the 1960s. 
And I remember them because they lived a couple of blocks from my family. Um, I saw them as basically just another group of hippies living in an urban commune. Um, they were friendly with, you know, the neighborhood kids. Some guys hung out with them. I didn't because I tend to mistrust people that talk that much about peace and love. But um, I just Googled them, actually. And they actually did take their name from the group in England in the 1600s. And they, their basic philosophy was, you know, anti-capitalism, you know, anti-money, that kind of stuff. So this is kind of an example of how these ideas can resonate and echo down through the centuries. And one last side note here, Peter Coyote, the actor, was actually one of the diggers. So he lived a couple of blocks from my family back in the 60s. And yes, I realize this story dates me terribly, but be nice to me and I'll tell you about the time before the internet when TVs would, were made out of wood. Oh, great story. Entirely appropriate for those guys to borrow the digger name. The ranters now, quite naturally, never had much in the way of formal organization. And at least according to George Fox, most of them became Quakers. Ranters stopped being a thing. So much so that one guy actually wrote a book claiming that ranters never existed, except for Clarkson, who wrote the book I mentioned, but were instead merely an idea, quote-unquote, invented by conservatives afraid of social and political change. Yeah, I know, history repeats. A minor coda for Clarkson, he joined the Muggletonians in 1660 and tried to become their leader, but they rejected him and he died in debtor's prison. Next, Quakers and Baptists. Uh, These two groups were the real winners and continuers of the 17th century sects. Their greatest successes were obviously in America. I don't want to go into their 17th century beliefs too deeply because they're still around, and have modified and updated many beliefs with the Baptists changing into a number of quite differing groups now. I'll say Quakers were not initially pacifists. It's fun to read that George Fox used to harangue Cromwell for not going out and conquering Paris, Madrid, and Rome and wiping out the Catholic Church entirely in an ocean of blood. But he had a principled refusal to take up arms himself, and pacifism and social justice became key ideas of the Quakers early on. Quakers attracted rich men as well as poor, including William Penn, son of the Admiral William Penn. Uh, Here's a curious thing. George Fox, the early Quaker, sometimes called the founder, I don't know, he came from a Northern England weaver family, a background that says Lollard to me. He was radical, really beyond the pale of respectable opinion. If he were not an obviously great man, but just some guy talking about how God is one thing and not a trinity, his local JP would have had him regularly in prison and and fined into poverty. But instead, he was able to see Cromwell personally be respected by other great men, all the while his ideas are so radical, in many districts his followers were beaten up and many JPs would not tolerate them. And then the Quakers get William Penn. I mean, how lucky can you be? And during the Stuart Restoration, after 1660, religious conformity was required again. The sects had to go underground, but not William Penn. He walked around openly, fighting everyone. He was in and out of prison. He was a bit of a superman. 
He wrote something like 16 books, including one that said people should not spend all their time reading books. Listen to podcasts. No. He was a soldier and a famous duelist whose specialty was in defeating all the other famous swordsmen of the time and then not killing his opponents, but making them listen to his lectures about why murder is immoral and while pinning them with his sword held at their throats. And when he was tried for blasphemy, he defended himself, and the jury refused to convict, even when the judge ordered the jury thrown into prison and held there until they came back with a guilty verdict. And this case led to the vitally important notion of jury nullification. He even impressed Charles II and his brother James, Duke of York, and future James II, and they would just hang out together. And that's remarkable for one weird little sect to have these two personally impressive men, massively personally impressive, one after another. Eventually, the Stuart brothers would give Penn the biggest colonial land grant of all, half of modern Pennsylvania, which means Penn's woods, which neatly fit in with the land the Quakers had already purchased in modern New Jersey. And there he learned Algonquin so he could speak to the natives, who lived peaceably with the Quakers for a long time. Baptists, believers in adult baptism, obviously had great success in America. But I don't have a strong thread connecting them to the miracle from the 17th century. I have an episode on their predecessors, the Anabaptists, uh, number 23, Drown the Anabaptists, with Aunt Green as a guest. But the Quakers actually have this thread to the miracle. The Industrial Revolution has its immediate origins in the Anglo-Dutch water world, where trade and prosperity created consumer economies, a culture of innovation and invention, sometimes called a culture of improvement, supported by a captive market for industrial products in America. The Quakers helped with this. The Quakers are an interesting sect. The Quakers got to be numerous. At their peak, about 1.5% of the population in Britain. They also had many converts in Holland and Germany. Many, many Quakers from all of these places emigrated to America. So there is a core of the early settlers that were Quaker. In addition, Pennsylvania got a reputation for being welcoming to people of different sects. So many other Germans from other unusual sects also emigrated to Pennsylvania. And centuries later, Richard Nixon was a Quaker. I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure that 1.5% number is accurate. That's a lot for an oppressed sect. Uh, just a little note for the English and Norwegian part of the audience. Most of the English Quaker emigrants to Pennsylvania came from northern England, from a stratum of Norse-descended people who had poorly assimilated, many minor merchants and traders rather than farmers. They culturally practiced and ideologically believed in equality of the sexes in a manner that was unusual for the time. And their frequently female preachers were often severely punished outside Quaker areas, even in America. The number of early Quaker immigrants, about 20,000 by the end of the 17th century, was crucial given the amazingly high fecundity of early colonial families. Puritan families averaged 9.7 children apiece. Quakers a little less. The key was population growth. It increased over 10 times by the time the Industrial Revolution was getting underway. Jonathan Scott emphasizes the key to the American market for British industrial goods was that it was not only substantial, something like 52% of British exports, 
but that it was growing rapidly. So much safer to invest when your potential market is growing. It's also true that many early figures in the Industrial Revolution were Quakers. In iron making and finance, and Lloyd's and Barclays, founded by Quakers, so big names, though some of you might be more impressed by Cadbury's chocolates. But I'm definitely not prepared to say there was something specific about Quaker beliefs that led to this, though others have. Although the Quakers had an outsized impact on the values of American culture and therefore world culture, the universal culture, Scott Alexander calls it sometimes. Uh, this is laid out with great care in a book called Albion Seed by David Hackett Fisher. I won't fully repeat the argument here, but it basically argues there were four main cultural threads from England that settled America and had outsized influences thanks to founder effects. In fact, it was Albion Seed that inspired me to dive into anthropology to find out how important founder effects are. The anthropologists have many studies and books saying, yes, indeed, founder effects are enormous. Uh, people move into a region and gradually adopt the dominant values of the area. I wonder whether this effect still holds in the Internet era. Oh, yeah, and there's a great full-length book review of Albion Seed on Slate Star Codex. It's from 2016, and maybe Quaka can put up a link at the website. Uh, stepping away from the specific sects, the radicals tended to put less importance on the Reformation than Puritans or the Church of England did. For them, religion was ruined long ago, like 4th century or so long ago when Emperor Constantine elevated the bishops and endowed the church with great wealth. All this codification of creed and elevation of a priestly caste, this separation from the people, led to an oppressive society i.e. medieval Europe, instead of a brotherhood of believers. The union of church and state was un-Christian. That apostasy happened 1,300 years before, and the Reformation could not be said to have fixed it. I mean, sure, overthrowing the papacy was a good thing, a very good thing, but then making the king the head of the church and increasing the power of the bishops was more of a reversion to the worst of the past. The real Reformation a return to the primitive church, the reformation of ordinary believers, that was still in the future. Milton and a few others like William Prynne and the Levelers were able to put this case in a historical context with logical coherence and powerful rhetoric. Because of them, I believe, religion eventually became less important as we go through time. Paradoxical response. That's not really paradoxical. Disillusionment and pessimism are the normal responses when utopian visions fail. In that view, the real reformers were Wycliffe and his Lollard followers and the humble Marian martyrs. As Christopher Hill put it, if Wycliffe had not been suppressed, the world might never have heard of Luther and Calvin. The reformation that happened was not a pure one. It had been sullied by the financial interest of princes and cities, in this perspective, the Reformation was just a point on the line from Wycliffe to the English Revolution. And for closing out this episode, I feel sort of at a crossroads. I mean, one path is from the viewpoint of the radicals. They achieved many of their goals, just not all. And did they feel life got better? No, really. Change is slow. I mean, this is a lesson, I think. You may feel some political thing is intensely important. But then it is achieved, and after an initial euphoria, 
it seemingly makes no difference. Disappointment with Cromwell and then crushed dreams with the Restoration, the great step backward. But that's too depressing a story. When I tell it in future episodes, it will be from the miracle perspective, not the radical perspective. Oh, and I haven't said much about the fifth monarchists. Uh, they were millenarians who had a belief in the, that the elect could not sin. And maybe we know more about them from their enemies than from themselves, but they took the Stuart Restoration hard and actually launched a coup attempt in January 1661. Many of the survivors were hanged, drawn, and quartered. The other road at the crossroads leads to us today. Uh, the radical program more or less got implemented, though it's probably a story too complex for me to deal with, and certainly not without an entire season's worth of work. Do note, however, that we have multiple decisive things. In episode 48, it was the ending of feudal land tenure. In this episode, Jonathan Israel notes the cultural and intellectual shift of attitudes coming from the revolutionary decades, the 1640s and 50s. And with that reminder that it takes a lot to make a miracle, we'll move to conversations with Cammie. Thanks for coming on the program, Raul Sunset, and telling us about the real-life ranters and diggers you grew up with. Yeah, I've gone from living near Peter Coyote when I was young to having real-life coyotes roam the streets of my neighborhood now. All right, hippies and urban wildlife. It has been weird to see your pictures of coyotes roaming through your neighborhood. Now we see them roaming through our neighborhood here too, but we're not in San Francisco. We also don't have all the hippies roaming through the neighborhood that you do. Or the ranters, as you put it before. Hey, thanks, Raul. Thanks for coming on the program and sticking with me through this double episode. I appreciate it very much, and I hope all the other muggles do too. Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> all right, Cammie, you just heard us finish up Muggles, Ranters, and Diggers. Uh, we did a lot on Quakers, mentioned Grindletonians and Seekers. What'd you think? I thought it was great. I didn't know of all these different sects. The Gwendoltonians, you said that they believed it was possible to live without sin? Mm-hmm. Tell me more about that. Well, I wish I could tell you what I think they mean. Once you receive the light in the way the Quakers refer to it as you know, true religion in your heart, then everything you do would be you know, consonant with that true religion and therefore impossible to sin. So you would have to have a number of beliefs, you know, like certainly not a sin to go around naked if you're going around naked some of the time. You don't have to be sinful about anything about your body. You have to have, you know, positive views on everything that people normally do. And I think in a Puritan world, that was uh, considered pretty, pretty odd. They sound pretty radical. Yeah, but there was something about them, I guess, because of their dependence on a guy as the Messiah. They just didn't last. I guess I can't help wonder. Okay, you're you're a Gwendoltonian, and you go out and do something outrageous. You kill someone, but they're living without sin. Uh, I don't know. I, I was just curious how that that whole thing fit. Yeah, you're probably that would sort of be proof that you didn't really have the inner light. Because well, if you had oh, the inner light, that you would could go out be and kill somebody. That that could be. Now a they, ranter might feel like they could go and commit murder without sin, because sinful acts as well as good action as well as sinful action both come from God. So going out and killing somebody, well, 
in the end, that must be from God, so I guess it's okay. And fifth monarchists could definitely do it. They believed that nothing the elect did could ever be a sin. And they didn't worry about, you know, somebody being killed because that's what God had wanted all along. And they were kind of, you know, appointed to just do God's work. Almost sounds like these are groups of people that could, in theory, live without any common laws, in their minds at least. In their minds at least. I mean, they would seem to us like uh, complete lunatics, basically. I mean, these are religious fanatics taken to the nth degree. I really enjoyed Raoul Sunset's recollections of growing up around diggers here in the Bay Area back when he was a kid. In the Haight-Ashbury. Well, he didn't say Haight-Ashbury, did he? Yeah, but that's where the digger commune was. That's where he grew up. William Penn. William Penn Superman. William Penn Superman. Tell me more about his trial, that that the judge ordered the jury into jail. What kind of jury is that? Yeah, a regular, a regular English jury. I mean, you wouldn't think things like that are possible. But remember, I've mentioned how the JPs are like local dictators. Right. And judges took an amazing amount of power into their own hands and on their own authority would do things like Off that. Off to you, jury. You didn't come back with the verdict I think you should have. Exactly. So out you exactly. go. Go think about it some more in the cooler until you come back. Yeah. I mean, people could maybe complain afterwards and maybe they could get some justice, but I think it'd be very difficult. But yeah, they refused to convict and and there were uh, appeals up and down the chain to the central government. And eventually, William Penn did not get convicted of blasphemy, even though as far as the judge was concerned, he was obviously being blasphemous. Obviously. Well, because the Quakers didn't believe in the Trinity as as a real thing. And so this concept, this concept of jury nullification was born, which has this uh, wonderful place in American history where, for example, juries in the North refused to convict people who helped fugitive slaves escape under uh, fugitive slave laws before the American Civil War, where people who were striking in violation of the law in the early days of the labor movement, you couldn't get a jury to convict them. They were clearly in violation of the law. People that helped runaway slaves were clearly in violation of the law, but a jury would refuse to convict. Therefore, the law would not be upheld. It would be nullified by the jury. And judges historically have tended to hate this, and, uh, and there's always been uh, a lot of tension. But it's a basic right that a human being with a conscience serving on the jury basically has to have. You can't uh, vote to convict someone of something you think is a person shouldn't be convicted of. Right. Well, the judge in this case, was definitely trying to stack the get deck against Penn. At some point, we'd be going further into all of the um, settlements, how there were more people in Pennsylvania from the German different sects. and. Yeah, it's a good question. I think the overall important thing for the creation of the miracle was not the components of the American population, uh, in terms of what their beliefs are, you know, Puritans, Cavaliers, uh, Border Reavers, and Quakers, and the Dutch influence in New York City and New York State. But more the fact of the the settlement was agricultural, so that in America there was a demographic explosion, where there was not one anywhere else in the Western Hemisphere. 
in the 17th and 18th centuries. And that demographic explosion was a key component of the demand for industrial products produced in England, without which, according to some historians, the Industrial Revolution could never have happened. Without demand, you don't need to build factories and... Yeah, so I think, you know, it's it's more going back to this notion that we talked about a few times before of ordinary people wanting to advance their social status the way they understood social status to, to exist by being farmers and owning their own land. And so that's how America developed and exploded. It wasn't an urban thing. It was definitely an on-the-land thing, and the American population was rural to a very high degree for a very long time. Those Puritans and Quakers that are out there farming and having lots of children. Yeah. But also you had the Anglican uh, Cavaliers in the South, and you had the Border Reapers. A uh, quarter million of them uh, emigrated from the United Kingdom. Oftentimes they're called the Scotch-Irish. Huh. And they settled large parts of America, New Hampshire and the uh, Appalachians. And people note these cultural similarities with uh, the westward migration you track the people that immigrated from New England. They had settlements of with certain characteristics that were quite different than the others. People who immigrated from Pennsylvania, even though they weren't Quakers anymore, had many Quaker-like characteristics that the culture kind of sunk in and, and persisted. Things they carried forward with them, even if they left their Quaker religion, they still carried some of the traditions yep. or yep. beliefs or holidays or... Just how you live ordinarily day to day. Well, I have to agree. It does take a lot to make a miracle, like the Industrial Revolution. Awesome. And with that comment, <laughs> we'll end it for this week. Thank you, Cammy. Please click subscribe or follow on your podcast app. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend about it. If you don't, please tell an enemy. Thank you for listening. Just remember, you can always reach me at harold at hangingwithhistory.com. That's harold is H-A-R-A-L-D at hangingwithhistory.com or through the Contact Us link on the website. Music